This is what's called a stepped wedge cluster randomised control trial. It's actually about making every day really meaningful and purposeful. Even conventional or complementary medicines weren't working for them. Something is going on in the kinds of spaces that we are building. They kept trying to find something else. Think. Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Hi, welcome to Think Health. I'm Jake Morecambe. Today, literally putting your hands in the dirt makes you feel better. There's actually microbes in the dirt that actually enhance your feeling of being okay, which is amazing. Horticultural therapy, how digging your hands into the earth can improve your mental health. And body image dissatisfaction, how just five minutes on Facebook can leave you feeling insecure about the way you look. Honey has been historically favoured for its antibacterial properties, but the favouring of synthetic antibiotics over the naturally occurring resource is a missed opportunity. That's the opinion of Daniel Buzo from the I3 Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney. Daniel's research looks at using Manuka honey as a first intervention to treat chronic wounds before the introduction of antibiotics. He's also pushing for these honey treatments to be utilised in Indigenous communities, as Aboriginal Australians suffer disproportionately higher rates of skin infections than non-Indigenous people. There's really not a lot out there about chronic wounds in Indigenous communities. One thing I noticed was that the most common trends amongst these communities is that they're typically two bacteria, and these are really easily treated with honey. And what are those? So that would be Staphylococcus aureus, also known as golden staph or MRSA. And another one is called Streptococcus pyogenes, sometimes just called strep. And how exactly does Manuka honey help with these particular wounds? The good thing about honey is for these communities, it's very easy to transport rather than some antibiotics which need refrigeration. The other part of it is that you can store them at room temperature for Um, numerous years and they don't go bad, whereas antibiotics often need to be brought in fresh, kept refrigerated. And the other really big advantage, the honey works against a wide range of bacteria, whereas most antibiotics are more specific. In these situations where people may not have as much access to medical facilities for proper molecular diagnosis, whereas if we have, we present here in big cities with an infection It's a day to go get your wound swabbed and get your test results back. So the honey is kind of what we call broad spectrum. So we can use it to treat a range of bacteria. Even when these wounds are mixed with different bacterium, it will work to eliminate those and help the wound heal. So let's say that someone has a wound and you're putting the honey on that wound. What's actually happening at the, I guess, microbial level to fix that? So you've got the actual inhibition or elimination of the bacteria. Often in the wound bed, the bacteria form communities called biofilms. So it's not just individual bacteria floating around. It's a mixed population of this bacteria which embed itself in this kind of protective substance. And the honey is effective against that where many antibiotics aren't. 
And the other side of it being shown that honey actually helps promote wound healing by stimulating the immune system. Wow, really? Yeah. How so? I'm really not <laughs> an expert in that, but my understanding is that half of it comes from the fact that it's the bacterial load is going down, so you're able to help the body essentially come in and repair itself with some kind of stimulation. When it comes to some of these like chronic wounds, things like golden staff that you'd mentioned and strep, like those those aren't your average wound. Like those can get pretty serious. Mm-hmm. If someone were to use manuka honey per se as an antibacterial, would that be used alongside other medications as well to help that wound or can it stand alone? Often in the clinic, honey is kind of seen as a last resort treatment. So like you mentioned with these um, bacteria, they're very bad and sometimes antibiotics don't work anymore. So usually clinicians will use honey as a last resort. There's a lot of case studies where patients have ceased antibiotic treatment and begun honey treatment and the honey alone is able to eradicate the bacteria. But in terms of how the honey is applied, usually it comes in a bandage, so it's more of a wound dressing and may be used side by side with some antibiotic therapy. Why do you think that it's seen as kind of like a backbench therapy? Is it because things like antibiotics have taken precedence or people have only just realized that you can in fact use honey to do this sort of stuff, although that practice has been around for, around for like millennia anyway. Exactly right. Yeah, it's been around for a really long time. Part of it comes down to the fact that there hasn't been really wide-scale clinical studies on how effective honey is. So we only really have limited case studies, maybe small cohorts of 10 to 15 people, whereas um with these antibiotic clinical trials, they involve thousands of people. But with that said, honey should be used almost before introducing antibiotics. If we're able to use the antibiotics as a last resort, we can prevent bacteria becoming resistant to the antibiotics, whereas we can use the honey as like the first line of defense and saving our most kind of precious antibiotics as a last resort. Honey is a naturally derived resource. To be able to get that, it would require, I guess, the practice of farming. Is that sustainable? Do we have enough manuka honey brewing so that we could then use it potentially as an antimicrobial? That's a really good question because um, that's something that brings in a lot of other questions to the table, particularly around the health of our bee populations. But There's a real shortage of manuka honey being the traditional term for the plant which the honey comes from. So we're also trying to look for similar honey here in Australia. In New Zealand, there's two species of um, manuka-type trees, whereas in Australia, we we refer to them as leptospermum trees. In Australia, we have, I believe it's 83 species. So we're also looking for new sources of this. And typically these are not farms or plantations, but come from um, national parks. And that brings in another question of, can we get more access to these areas for our beekeepers? To go back to, you were talking about using it for like Aboriginal or Indigenous populations. 
say there might be a Aboriginal community out there is has already used honey practices. It's about collaborating with that community and knowing how they use it and what's applicable to them. That's exactly right. I think that um, there's so much knowledge there and it's so easy for someone who sits in a research lab all day to assume they know what's best for somebody, but that's not the case at all. We need to work with people to understand what their needs are and um, what their experiences are and all of the knowledge, like you're saying, tens of thousands of years of knowledge there. It's not something to dismiss, you know. Daniel Buzo, PhD student in the I3 Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney. What do you do when your job is taken by a robot? Where does all your e-waste go? How do you split your digital assets when you break up with your partner? This is Think Digital Futures. Each week, an exploration of the moral and mind-boggling questions that face us in the digital age. You can listen on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Digital Futures. You're listening to Think Health on 2SCR 107.3. Body image dissatisfaction, or BID, refers to the insecurities you might have regarding your physical appearance. These dissatisfactions can lead to a confused sense of identity and confidence, and for some, can turn into serious chronic eating disorders. Rachel Cohen is a registered psychologist from the Graduate School of Health at the University of Technology, Sydney. I caught up with Rachel to ask when she meets with one of her clients who shows signs of BID, what's step one to help them overcome the issues they have with their body? Is the first thing that you would do as a practicing psychologist try and steer them away from looking at their phone or try and help them to become more accepting of the body that they might have? So that's really interesting because there's two questions there of you know, whether you want to target the dissatisfaction itself and make them decrease that dissatisfaction or whether you want to increase their body appreciation, which is they're both actually um, psychological concepts and they don't exist on the same continuum. So they're not one in the same. Um, I guess the first thing, though, if I when when because you see it a lot when I see clients with body image dissatisfaction or eating disorders or all those kind of things, you know, there's evidence based practice, and I guess those haven't necessarily taken into account social media yet. You can't say social media is causing it. It's definitely a factor that's perpetuating it or making it worse and maintaining certain body image issues. So I would definitely be asking from the get go what their engagement with social media is like. Who are they following? How often are they using it? Are they looking at it first thing in the morning? Are they spending hours on it? Especially if it's eating disorders, are they reading all these fitspiration and diet posts which are often put up by, you know, that aren't evidence-based and put up by someone who just looks a certain way and decides they're the expert on it. Um, and it can be really giving dangerous messages. So I'd be targeting it in terms of the maintenance of the body image issues and looking at it as, in, as you would any kind of trigger or maintaining factor. So what is interesting and what my research is currently looking at is how do we target that? My personal belief is we can't tell people to stop using social media. It's integral to our life. There's a lot of positive factors too. It helps people with connection, helps people with business. There's access to your news and all these things through it today. So my kind of thing is if we can't beat them, join them. What can we include in you know, their social media feeds to buffer against effects? Or how can we arm people with tools to become more literate in terms of their social media use, whether that's about what they're following or how they're following and the processes they engage in. So my current research is actually going to be looking at if including body appreciation content 
buffers against the effects and helps people to develop greater body appreciation so they're less likely to have that kind of the adverse effects um, when they do compare themselves to others, which is an, an innate process. Do you think that body image dissatisfaction has an expiration date? Do you see it as something that for the individual that they could overcome? Or is it something that they just perhaps as time goes on, just figure out ways to become more used to it? Look, it's a hard one. I, there's definitely people out there who don't think about their body in that way. I think that it's a very hard thing given our society and given the focus, and it's a hard expectation on humans. And I think that there can be more of a focus on function and, and what your body can do rather than how it looks. I definitely think that people can move past dissatisfaction with their bodies. But again, it's that question of do they need to love their body? Not necessarily, but maybe it's just not thinking about their body in that way to begin with. You know, so there's that thing of the body appreciation and a lot of the literature and a lot of the content, even if you follow body positive things, and it's love your body and da 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 And maybe you don't need to love your body, and that's fine too. But as long as you're able to be in your body and not love it or, nor hate it, just be as you would with most other things in your life um, and engage in the world in a healthy way, that's the main thing as long as it's not impacting on your function and you're not thinking about it constantly you don't have to love it do you see or have you spoken to men who've experienced this same sort of i guess societal pressure for their body to conform yeah for sure so my research is personally focused on women but there's lots of research going into men now and you're seeing that's the same effects most people that there was this understanding that women use social media more but even more recent stats are showing that they're using it the same amount and in the same way the focus would be different, obviously, in terms of the ideal. So for women, it's usually this thin ideal or certain features. For men, it's this idea of being muscular. So men are engaging in the same processes. If they're coming across their friends in their ideal, looking great with their shirts off, who've just done a workout or whatever, they're going to feel worse about themselves too. And we're seeing the exact same pattern. So it's definitely not a woman's issue. I think it was conventionally. So in conventional media, it was more of a woman's issue because the nature of fashion and magazines and celebrities was women showing their bodies interestingly with social media it's put men on the map um, in that way which is unfortunate so yeah it's definitely a similar pattern and I've seen in my personal work a lot of clients who are men who are having very big body image issues and a lot of the factors that would be contributing to that is comparing themselves to friends or celebrities on social media when does body image dissatisfaction turn into something perhaps more serious, as in it, it might develop into a more serious eating disorder? That's the reason for this research. So, you know, as I said, a lot of people have body image dissatisfaction. If it doesn't impair with your day-to-day life, that's fine. What we do know is that it's a huge um, predictive factor for disordered eating, and that's, that's where this interest into the literature comes, is, is in terms of those more clinical issues. And... Um, yet yeah, it's very, very linked to disordered eating. If you feel dissatisfied enough, you're going to eventually start to engage in behaviours to change the way you look. Um, and unfortunately, those behaviours are often unhealthy, like restrictive eating, um, over-exercising, and just having an unhealthy relationship with food and your body to begin with. So there's a fine line, and that's why this research is really important. We do see increases in disordered eating in young women, but in men and in in older people as well so it's it's really prevalent you can't pinpoint that to social media but I definitely believe in the the literature is showing that it's playing a role in it so that's why you know the approach to it has to be this multifactorial understanding and intervention but 
social media plays a role and, and needs to be understood better so that we can target it better. Rachel Cohen, registered psychologist from the Graduate School of Health at the University of Technology, Sydney. Gardening and tending to plants may seem like a tedious task to some, but to others it can result in an improved sense of well-being and mental health outcomes. This practice is called horticultural therapy and has been utilised by the St Vincent's Hospital in Kings Cross, Sydney by not just patients, but hospital staff. Sarah Wilkinson and Fiona Orr from the University of Technology, Sydney, have collaborated on a project to bring more interactive green spaces to hospitals. With Sarah's background in architectural design and Fiona's background in mental health, they're planning to design spaces that would give patients a warm experience while also provide somewhere and something they can turn their attention to for a few hours a week. I think another thing too was the way their senses were heightened, that they could see things, smell things, the feel of things. So it's really as it relates to the individual and really allowing them, I think, to express personality, parts of themselves and develop parts of themselves that perhaps have been affected because they've been unwell. I think it's a sort of slowing down and pausing and stopping and actually smelling that herb and the aroma and Mm. do you like it and oh well this one's even nicer you know and it will get passed around and things like that and somebody uh, sent me uh, an article about microbes improving your well-being literally putting your hands in the dirt makes you feel better there's actual microbes in the dirt that actually enhance your feeling of being okay which is amazing and they talked about how they felt and what they were thinking and what senses had been activated. So each week it wasn't just, oh, we arrive and everyone starts gardening. The group actually got to really know each other and Sarah and I were also participants in the group. So we were actively participating, not just there as observing researchers. Mm. So we did the eight-week program as well. Right. And we saw, you know, the benefits developing in the others who were participating, but we felt them in ourselves Mm. too. What exactly was this program? The horticultural therapy program that was going on on top of this uh, roof of a church hall in King's Cross at St. Canisius. This had been going on before we were invited to it. So it involved um, people who'd used mental health services at St. Vincent's Hospital, just up the road in Darlinghurst, and they would come down and uh, do this horticultural therapy for two hours a week over the eight weeks uh, with this trained horticultural therapist. So really we were invited by a a contact Sarah had, an engineer, Rob Caslick. That's right, yes. The really nice outcome of our involvement was that we evaluated two programs and on the back of that, the hospital were able to put forward a case for having facilities on site at the hospital. And we're now currently... uh, looking at designs that are being prepared to retrofit two or three unused rooftop spaces at the hospital. Right. Mm. So that's going to be fantastic Mm. to actually get a real outcome. I think getting back to the ones we did evaluate at St. Canisius, the other thing that really came up was that a number of the people who were coming to the horticultural therapy were quite disadvantaged. So they often were living in a room 
in block of units or a house. Some lived in rooms that didn't have a window. They certainly didn't have gardens and then they certainly didn't have their own plants or capacity to have the plants because of the living environment they were from. And they really, I mean, overwhelmingly talked about it was the highlight of their week, coming to the roof space to see each other, to learn more about each other, the cohesion that happened between the, the group members. For many, it was, yeah, they said that it was the highlight of their week, getting to know other people, making new friends, having connections with others, feeling better, feeling less stressed, somewhere to relax, talking about their mood lifting and talking about the sanctuary and the haven that mm. they came to each week in the middle of King's Cross, three yeah. flights up. It was framed by a beautiful jacaranda tree and the lovely sandstone church. People just really saw it was two hours of kind of protected time for them that they just absolutely love. In terms of going another step further, and you were talking about implementing them in hospitals, where would you like to see them? Obviously in uh, sort of hospitals on rooftops and in gardens and being sort of utilised and something that uh, patients can participate in. I mean, in the corporate sector, again, I think Macquarie Bank has got a, a rooftop garden with chooks on the ninth floor in Martin mm-hmm. Place. And I think maybe we should get some chooks, chooks on the tower. Yeah, <laughs> university. UTS tower. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> UTS <laughs> Sarah Wilkinson, Associate Professor in the Faculty of Design, Architecture and Building, and Fiona Orr, Lecturer of Mental Health Nursing in the Faculty of Health, both from the University of Technology, Sydney. That's all we have time for today on Think Health. If you'd like to find out anything more about today's show, head to 2ser.com forward slash thinkhealth. We're also available on iTunes. Think Health is a collaboration between the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER. I'm Jake Morecambe. See you next time.